I almost did it again. I almost forgot what's next. So our text for this morning completes kind of this threefold scene that we've been in in Genesis chapter 21. In the first scene, Genesis 21 verses 1 through 7, we saw God display his steadfast love. We, we talked about steadfast love being his commitment to do good to them from now into eternity. In the second scene last week, 21, 8 to 21, we saw how the Lord interacts with those who are not recipients of his eternal steadfast love. How though he keeps them separate from his people, he sustains them because he's good. Today the scene changes. And the main actor is not God, but our two men, Abraham and Abimelech, a believer and an unbeliever. I mentioned that often in the Old Testament, we find displays in story form Lessons and principles that we see in the New Testament. Today is another such example. So let's please look first at that New Testament lesson. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. We're going to read from verse 43. This is in the middle of, or at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Now, this instruction is not surprising. Jesus teaches what he lived. Yet in light of what follows just in a few verses in Matthew 5 and our text from last week, we see that there is more to life than imitating Jesus. He continues, For the Father makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For, or because, answers the question, why should we love and pray for our enemies? It's true that Jesus did, but is there another reason? The answer is yes. Since God is good, to all of those in this image, believer and unbeliever alike, making the sun rise and the rain fall on both, so also we must love them and pray for those who oppose us. Look at verse 47. Because if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Here, Jesus, he chastises the disciples for a way of thinking that says that we don't have to do good to neighbors outside the faith. He does this by pointing out that our unbelieving friends, they treat each other with kindness and civility and goodness. Should we do less? Look at verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's interesting what he does there at the very end. He ends this exhortation to love our enemies by reminding us God's love is perfect. But perfection here is in reference to the extent of his love, the extent of his care for those in his image. I'm falling apart here. Jesus isn't talking about God's moral or spiritual purity. In this context, perfect or complete, refers to the extent of God's love. How far out does God's love push? 
He loves not just those who love him, but to all in his image. So also for us, our love and care can't just be to those in the family of God, but should be to all in his image. This is what Jesus tells us his followers do. We don't limit our love to those inside the church. But like God's love extends to all in his image, ours must as well. In fact, as we do that, we are confirming that we belong to the Father through Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Are you following? We don't become sons and daughters by our actions. That is by grace through faith alone. Yet our actions for the good of others or our love must extend beyond the borders of our people or we risk contradicting our confession that we follow Jesus. He loved his enemies, confirming his sonship. He's telling us we must do the same. That's what our text for today covers. Genesis 21, so turn there if you would. Genesis 21, verses 22 to the end of the chapter. It takes this principle of loving our enemies and it illustrates it with the interaction between Abraham and the pagan king Abimelech. What does it mean to love our enemies? Or to define enemy more precisely, what does it mean to act for the good of those who oppose us? For those who question us? or for those who persecute us? That's the question of our text. What does it mean to act for the good of those who oppose us, question us, or persecute us? From Genesis 21 in this section, we get two things. Number one, we must deal humbly with them. And secondly, we must deal honorably with them. Remember what's at at stake with how we treat those outside the faith, those who oppose us, those who persecute us. It is demonstrating that we are indeed children of God. So let's read Genesis 21, beginning in verse 22. And at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You do not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? Abraham said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because there was both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, that your word never goes forth in returning without what you intend. Lord, I pray that this word this morning would do its work in my soul and in the souls of all who hear. We pray that by it you would reveal to us the ways in which we must live with our fellow humans in a way that is good for them and confirms that we do 
follow Christ. We do belong to Christ. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So our first point is this. In order to confirm that we belong to Jesus, we must deal humbly with unbelievers. So shortly after Hagar sent uh, Abraham sent Hagar and Ishmael away. He is pr- approached by a delegation from Abimelech. Perhaps Abraham had invited Abimelech to attend Isaac's celebration. Abraham was sojourning on Abimelech's land, so his presence here is not terribly surprising. Look at verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, as we know, this isn't the first time that Abimelech has been in the story of Abraham. He appeared first back in chapter 20 when Abraham first entered into his territory. Abraham, you might remember that story, he believed that there were no God-fears in the land and due to Sarah's beauty that he'd be killed so she could be taken. He lied to Abimelech at that time, calling Sarah only his sister. So Abimelech paid him the bride price and took her. Well, we know the story. God kept Abimelech from violating Sarah. He protected her. He also revealed to Abimelech what was going on and what would happen to him and his family unless Sarah left his household. The threat to his life and kingdom terrified his men, the scripture says. So they confronted Abraham for this work of treachery. They gave, you might remember, they gave him a thousand pieces of silver to testify to the innocence of Sarah. And they also gave him permission to sojourn anywhere he liked. That whole event wasn't a great display of Abraham's faith in Yahweh, was it? We read that event and we think, well, Abimelech is more noble and more honest. So sometime later, we pick up in our text, Abimelech comes forward and says this very strange comment, God is with you in all that you do. Now, we don't know what he's referring to here. We do know that Abraham was a man of great wealth. Perhaps he was referring to Isaac, which was clearly proof that God was with Abraham. So he continues, look at verse 23. Now, therefore, you must swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my successors. But as I have dealt kindly to you, so you will deal kindly with me and with the land where you've sojourned. So it's a a strong demand. You must swear to me by God here. Abimelech knew that Abraham was a religious man and had already attributed his blessings to God Now he calls Abraham to invoke God, to invoke God to hold accountable the one who breaks this oath. In other words, to make Abraham realize that if he fails to uphold this oath, his God will repay the injustice. I mean, Abimelech had reason not to trust Abraham, right? The events of chapter 20 proved that Abraham could lie if he thought it would protect him. You remember what Abimelech said to Abraham back in chapter 20. He says, what have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not be done. So Abimelech is demanding that Abraham swear by God rather than simply give him a handshake and say, hey, we're good to go. Instead, Abimelech says, but as I have shown you loyalty, so you will show loyalty to me and the land where you've sojourned. Now, Abimelech didn't appeal to his own God or to Abraham's behavior. Rather, he simply pointed out that he has dealt with loyalty to Abraham and expects the same. This word, loyalty, or kindly, the ESV says, it's a covenant word, which makes sense in the context. This 
is the word the Lord used to describe how he will care for those in covenant with him. Exodus 34. The Lord passed before Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the word. It's the same word we find in Lamentations 3, verse 22. You know the verse. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That is, the steadfast commitment to act for the good of someone. Abimelech was saying to Abraham, I have consistently acted for your good all the while that you've been in my land. I'm asking you to do the same. He hasn't transgressed a border. He's not sinned against Abraham. He's not defrauded him. He's simply asking him to deal with him as he has dealt with Abraham. Abraham's response in verse 24 is a bit obscured in the English. It's emphatic and it's humble. It says this, I, I myself will swear. Given their history, Abraham or Abimelech was being careful and shrewd, wasn't he? He realized that he needed to establish a means by which his kingdom would not be threatened as Abraham's holdings grew. He has, re he has reason to suspect that they might be, given how Abraham treated him the last time. So this fact that he insisted on an oath from Abraham reflects Abraham's history of dishonesty. It's interesting how that lingers, doesn't it? So I want to I consider why Abraham was dishonest, dishonest in the first place. But before I do that, let's take a step back and, and consider for ourselves the impact of our dishonesty and things like it on how others view Christ. You understand? What does our confession to be Christian mean when we match our confession with anxiety or we lie or we cheat or we manipulate? How is Christ portrayed to those who watch when we do these things? Let's ask three questions. Number one, if we cower with fear over the future, of, of COVID, uh, war, inflation, cancer. What are we teaching people about Christ? That he's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings? Well, people might say, wow, I, had, I thought you were a Christian. I had no idea you were so fearful. What does the scripture say? Colossians 1.16, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Paul just layers it on one phrase after another, one on top of another. He is the Lord of lords, the firstborn of creation, the creator of the ends of the earth. And he calls us, by giving us his spirit, and then we turn around and we're afraid. Even in his flesh, Paul says this about Christ, Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Why do we fear the fallenness of this world? And why do we show that fear by our actions? When this Lord, this Christ, has created all things and purchased us with his blood. Forgiving our past, sealing our future. Question number two, what if we manipulate or lie to others? What are we teaching people about Christ? That perhaps he isn't providing for us or he isn't generous to us. People might say, you lie just like everyone else. I thought lying was a sin. Ever had an unbeliever confront you with that? Or... or you manipulate people to make yourself look good. I thought you were supposed to help others. 
Is it true? Has Jesus Christ not earned enough for us? Must we find ways to get mine? What does the scripture say? Mark 10, 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. If he has secured these things for us now and in eternity, why would we deceive or gossip or manipulate to get more in this life? Third question, what if we are angry rage monsters when things don't go our way? We pout, or we give the cold shoulder, or we get real close to the bumper of the guy in front of you who's not doing what you should be doing. We teach those who watch our anger, they don't see our patience or humility or our trust in Christ. We teach them that perhaps Christ wants us to be angry rage monsters. People might say, you claim to be a Christian, but you act like a ticking time bomb, ready to explode. Jesus certainly didn't live this way. So what does the scripture say? Listen listen to what James says. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Beloved, we are the first fruits. We have the best and most perfect gift from God, Jesus Christ. Why do we think when our comfort or our safety is in danger that anger over the loss of it is how the Spirit is leading us? Beloved, our responses to God's providence, that is the things that come into our lives moment by moment, our responses to them teach those who watch us what we believe about Jesus. But more important than that, they teach us about, they teach about Jesus. Do our lives portray him rightly? So secondly, let's talk about what drove Abraham's dishonesty. Well, in Genesis 20, verse 11, he explains to Abimelech why he lied to Sarah. Here's what he says. I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. But this wasn't just a snap decision he made in the presence of Abimelech. Genesis 20, verse 13 reads this. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to Sarah, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So apparently from the earliest moments of Abraham's departure from Haran and his father's house, he had this standing agreement with Sarah. This is why we saw it in chapter 12 when he was in Egypt. This is why we see it in chapter 20 with Abimelech. With with all the travels they made, you have to ask, how many times did they lie to their host? But did Abraham have reason to lie? Did he have reason to doubt, to fear for his life? Let's go all the way back to when God first spoke to Abram. Let me read to you what what he wrote, what God said in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, and your kindred, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What does that sound like to you? What does it seem that God is obligating himself to do? 
protect them? Lead them to what they need and far more? Doesn't this sound like God guaranteeing his special attention to them? Yes, it does. But Abraham didn't believe God. So he made his wife swear that she'd lie for him. Even in Genesis 15, when Abraham looked up at the stars and demonstrated saving faith in God, put his faith in God, he still insisted that Sarah lie for him. It wasn't that he didn't believe in God in a saving way, but in the moment when the things were uncertain, when he was fearful or what was happening didn't make any sense to him, he took matters into his own hand and he ignored the promises of God. Abraham's very human in that way. In our human frailty and fallenness, we are no less guilty than Abraham. Each time we sin, we turn away from the promises of God that he has made to us in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, what, what promises from God do we have? Are they less than Abraham's? Would you call adoption as sons or daughters of God less? Would you call the promise of Christ and all things in him less? Hebrews 9 reads this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Beloved, we're, we're dishonest with people for many surface reasons. Fear, greed, shame, but these all have the same root. We don't believe God will take care of us. We don't believe that he's for us in Christ. When our bodies are in danger, our livelihoods are in danger, our reputation's in danger, we just, we just don't believe that God has done enough. But it doesn't just stop there. We then take the next step. We, we don't believe that God is really for us. So then we take the next step and we determine that we will take care of ourselves, right? There's only one way to do that. And that is to make sure that everyone around you does exactly what you want them to do all the time. You see, we cannot deal humbly with people, especially unbelievers, if in the back of our minds we think God won't give us what we need. Abraham struggled to trust God. He let his fear win over his faith. So he made Sarah lie for him, and he lied to Pharaoh, and he lied to Abimelech. Beloved, if Abraham had truly believed God would care for him. He wouldn't have asked Sarah to lie for him. He wouldn't have lied to Abimelech. It all comes down to this. We, you and I, we will be unjust and dishonest with others, especially those outside the faith, as long as we believe God won't take care of us. So we must remember, God has promised to provide for us. Matthew 6, 33. Christ has promised to be with us to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. The Lord and the Spirit intercede for us with truth and love. Romans 8, 34. Jesus has secured by his blood and he keeps us. That's Jude 1. All of those things flood our minds. Then we can be humbly with anyone, no matter the cost. Yet fail to trust in God, we won't love and pray for our enemies. We will be protecting ourselves, shielding ourselves, fortifying ourselves against them. And if we do all that, beloved, then our confession to follow Christ is suspect. Christ loved and prayed for his enemies because he was resting in the love of God for him. 
Christ entrusted himself to God, and that freed him to serve others. Beloved, have you entrusted yourself to God? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Has the blood of the eternal covenant washed over your souls so that you are free, free now to interact with humility with anyone, no matter the cost? The blood of Christ purchases such freedom for all who believe. The next part of this text, the rest of the chapter, seems to be a second scene of the same encounter. The topic is a well. So this point is that in order to confirm we belong to Jesus, we must deal honorably with others. So as with the first time that Abraham and Abimelech met, there was a dispute. It was over Sarah, right? This time there's a dispute. That time the line of promise was in danger. This time with that contested well, the survival of the line of promise is in danger. Verse 25, and Abraham rebuked Abimelech about a well of water seized by Abimelech's servants. It's just a strange spot for this verse. Before the men get into their oaths and covenant, Abraham brought up a very important fact. Abimelech's servants have put Abraham and his house in grave danger by seizing a well. Wells were often shared by herdsmen. We see this a number of times throughout the scriptures. But it appears here that Abimelech's servants were not allowing Abraham's access to the well. They couldn't get water for themselves. They couldn't get water for their animals. So if Abraham was going to sojourn in peace... Abimelech needed to act. Even though Abraham had just agreed to deal kindly with Abimelech in his house, he didn't hesitate to confront Abimelech over this issue. Verse 26, And Abimelech said, I do not know who did this thing, and also you made no announcement to me, and also I have not heard of it until today. So Abimelech's three rapid-fire defensive statements, I don't know, you didn't tell me, I have not heard. I mean, you know what it's like when you confront somebody and they do that to you. What happens next? You're like, oh. Really? So the question is, what will, what will be Abraham's response? I mean, he was interested in their relationship enough to confront Abimelech about a well. Now we get this threefold kind of denial, 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 and you wonder, what's Abraham going to do next? Look at verse 27. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two of them made a covenant. Well, that's odd. With no further disputing, Abraham moves right into the covenant ceremony. In these covenant-making ceremonies, gifts were often apart. The, the greater would give a lesser gift for love. The lesser would give greater gifts out of, out of humility and respect. So the two men make a covenant with each other. And at this point, that covenant would be probably what we read in verse 23. A mutual covenant to deal kindly with one another. But there is more work to be done because we still have this issue of the well. Look at verse 28. Abraham set seven ewe lambs from the flock apart. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven lambs mean that you've set by themselves? He said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand as a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because both of them swore an oath. So that, this is separate from the dealings originally as clear by Abimelech's response. He didn't, he didn't know what Abraham was doing. The lambs were payment. Even if Abraham believed the wells belonged to him, he still acted with generosity and honor and purchased them from Abimelech. Beersheba means the well of an oath or the well of seven. So this, the name of this place marked this transaction, this event. 
This was acceptable to Abimelech, and we see that the verse continues, then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham also turned and planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, and Abraham resided in the land of the Philistines for many days. Bottom line up front, Abraham's honest, honorable dealing resulted in him having security before the Lord and a sense of worship. This covenant-making ceremony was concluded and Abraham's guests left. He planted this tree or a grove, as some translate the word. It was a, it was a sign of his intent to sojourn, as was his worship. Beloved, the Lord does not dishonor anyone that he met. He treated each man or woman as an image bearer. He listened, he challenged, he rebuked, he calmed, he valued, he laughed, he wept. Whatever upright and righteous response was required of the Lord to treat image bearers as image bearers, he did it. It didn't matter who it was. For us to treat all men and women with honor is to reflect him to prove that we belong to him. So let's talk about two things from this passage. First, Abraham made a covenant with a pagan king. You ever thought about that? It's important to distinguish what Abraham is doing from what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14. You'll know this text. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? This passage would seem to restrict with whom we can make covenant, right? I mean, was Abraham's covenant with Abimelech one of necessity or something he, he just had to do? Whereas, hey, we're New Testament Christians. We don't have to do that stuff. Well, practically speaking, we don't live that way. We do that stuff all the time. How many of you have a mortgage, a car loan, a credit card, streaming contracts, a cell phone, an HOA covenant? We live this way all the time with unbelievers. We have all of these things with them because living in our culture requires them, most of them anyway. Paul's intent was that we don't yoke ourselves religiously with those outside the faith of Jesus Christ. He makes it clear in all the contrast. Righteousness, lawlessness, light, darkness, Christ, Belial, temple of God, Temple of Idols. He isn't talking about contracts or covenants that we might make to live in this world with our unbelieving neighbors. Abraham valued his relationship with his potential adversary. Abimelech, enough to invoke God to be a witness that he will uphold it. He honored Abimelech with a covenant and an oath. But my point isn't that he entered into a covenant with him. Rather, it is that Abraham valued their relationship. He didn't see an enemy, but an opportunity. Beloved, relationships have become cheap and weightless. A friend is now someone who follows you on social media. We live in relationships cheaply with little commitment any conflict at all forces us to abandon it. Everyone is toxic. It's just a matter of time until we find out, right? We cannot honor others in relationships if we believe this way. By holding such a view of relationships, we cut ourselves off of loving our enemies as Christ would have us, right? Enemies, by definition, are toxic, 
Our culture says bring down the hammer of judgment and balk that jerk or ignore them. Jesus says something very different. Love and pray for them. Listen, young people. Now, let me define who that is. If you're a millennial or younger, pay attention. You are growing up in a culture where you are told everyone is potentially toxic, so be on your guard. But here in God's word, we're told everyone is potentially in need, so you should be prepared to love and pray for them, no matter who they are. Ask yourselves, how many relationships have you ended because you judged someone as toxic? And before you did, did you pray for them? Did you act for their good or did you just throw them away? Think about this. When you and I were toxic, truly enemies of God, what did he do? Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved, enemies are inherently hostile. They oppose us. They undercut us. They gossip about us. They work to gain over us. But by the power of the Spirit, we who follow Christ can love and pray for them. Indeed, we must for our sake and for theirs. Secondly, here we see the first recorded episode where Abimelech and his men do wrong towards Abraham and his men. This is new. While it appears Abimelech wasn't aware of what was the shepherds had done, a wrong is in process. Now, Abraham could have legitimately confronted Abimelech. I mean, he'd just been chastised by Abimelech about not dealing kindly with him, loyally with him. Abraham could have said, so how is your men taking my well, you acting kindly with me? But he didn't. Abraham just honored him by giving him the judgment of charity. In other words, when Abraham confronted Abimelech, Abimelech denied any knowledge of what was happening. What did Abraham do? He accepted that at face value and moved right into the covenant ceremony. Look, look at the verses, 26 and 27. What do you find in between those verses? Nothing. Beloved, are you the kind of person who gives people the benefit of the doubt? That's what the judgment of charity means. Listen to Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who swears to his own hurt. This is what Abraham displayed. The well was his, yet to honor Abimelech, he paid the king as if he were buying it for the first time. Giving the benefit of the doubt is easier with our own people, right? Not so easy with those who aren't, but we have to remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Who is Jesus talking about? People we don't know, or people we're not sure about, or people who we know are bad news. Do these people get the judgment of charity or do we just give them judgment? Abraham might have had reason to judge Abimelech. His shepherds had taken a well from his possession. He was right to confront the king about it, but he honored him by taking him at his word. Do we take people at their word? 
Or better, if we haven't yet brought a challenge to someone, do we give them the benefit of the doubt before we do? When I do counseling, and it involves uh, training in how to communicate differently, I use ground rules. Here are three. I have 73 ground rules. Just, just kidding, just kidding. I think I just have seven. Here's three. Number one, listen to this. Other interpretations are possible. Just because we see or hear what we see or hear doesn't mean we have all the data. We have to make room for the possibility that there's things we don't know. Other interpretations are possible. Number two, assume no harm until proven otherwise. In our legal system, we call that what? Innocence until proven guilty. It makes sense, but it's hard to do. Yet it is essential if we're to honor those who disagree with us. Thirdly, assume you don't know until you ask. How can we possibly have all the data if we don't ask? But it doesn't keep us from assuming that we do. But to do so sets us up to be judgmental towards others. These are precisely the ways that we see Abraham respond to Abimelech. He didn't assume Abimelech authorized this, so we asked for clarification. He asked, assuming no harm, so that when Abimelech responded, Abraham was able to accept it. We often say, trust is earned. And there's truth to that. A realistic view of mankind is important. We are sinners and we sin. Blindly trusting isn't wise. However, there are times when we set the bar for people to earn our trust so high it is sinful. We set it unrealistically because we are committed to protecting ourselves. Sometimes the bar we set is never met, despite the effort. I've seen it many times in marriage and in child rearing. We say we want others to earn our trust, but then we move the goalposts all the time. We never really give them a chance. What if, along with wise, a wise use of trust earning, we had a healthy view of trust losing? In other words, we treat people in such a way that it takes a lot for them to lose our trust. The bar we set for someone to lose our trust should be higher than the bar we set for someone to gain our trust. You following? What did Peter ask the Lord in Matthew 18? Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. You know what Jesus is teaching here, a high bar of trust losing. What does it mean if we have a high bar of trust losing? It means we are depending on the Holy Spirit, not just for the strength to have such a high bar, but a trust that if we trust and lose, we've really lost nothing. Beloved, when we trust and we lose, if we have Christ, we've lost nothing. Truly, if we're taken advantage of, if someone mocks us, someone slanders us, someone steals from us, someone kills us, what have we lost? The love of God? No, he gave that to us when we were his enemies, sealed by the blood of Christ. The ministry of Christ? No, he ever lives to make intercession for us. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit? No, he has sealed us for our inheritance and he will deliver it to us when it is our time. Seriously, beloved, we need to have some perspective here. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, have entrusted our souls to him, is there something or someone powerful enough to undo what he has done with his blood? What's the answer? 
No, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That means we can honor others at no cost to ourselves. We can love others at no loss to ourselves. We can give others, give to others without the fear that we'll have nothing left. But how do we know? How do we know that we can do all those things? Anybody want to guess? The table, the body and blood of Christ. As long as this table is on display before the people of God, we have nothing to lose in how we love even our enemies. Amen? Amen. All right, if you've got kids and kids, let's go fetch them. If you're going to serve with me, please come up here and have a seat. Go fetch them youngins so they can see what we're